moving your career further faster. That's the mission behind Cascading Leadership. Each week, we're bringing you stories of women, immigrants, members of the global majority who have risen to the ranks of senior leadership in the world of business. Get ready to gather the insights of some of the world's best business leaders and apply those to your career. If you're interested in sales and marketing effectiveness, organizational effectiveness, talent strategy, DEI, or HR tech, tune in. We're going to share with you what they don't teach you in business school. Welcome to the show. Welcome to Cascading Leadership, the show. We have another great episode in store for you. I am your host, Jim Canitrio. And I am your other host, Lawrence Brown. Hello, Lawrence Brown. I want to introduce our featured guest, Damar Phillips. Damar, hi. tell us a little bit about yourself. <laughs> Thank you for the wonderful introduction. My name is Damar Phillips. I am a senior executive, human resources, organizational development, people culture for my background. I am one of, if I can go into a little family story, one of seven children, the baby boy, younger sister, but there's a gap between me and the other five, or the first five, I should say, not the Jackson five, but the Phillips five. And my passion has always been around people. And so I think finding a career a little bit later, we'll talk about it, that centered around people in public service and doing things to help develop people has always been my center, my grounding grew up in a very religious household and that informed my high school, early college years. Mom was at church every Sunday, taking us to church Wednesday nights for choir practice and Saturday Sundays and formed some beliefs that were grounded, not in versus wrong, but more of just trying to be a good person. I think that is a trait I have kept throughout my 47 years of being here. So excited about that. I'm sure we'll explore more areas in a little bit, but my faith, my family, my friends, that is my foundation. And everything I do is to be a better person, to leave a legacy behind after I'm gone, where other people can continue to tell the story of how, if I've been able to help them in some small way, that to me is what's important. It's what you leave behind that lasts, not what you do while you're here. When we talk about faith, family, friends, leaving a legacy. These are all things to varying degrees that have shaped all of us in terms of the why behind our show. Thanks for sharing that with us, Damar. Interestingly, that provides an awesome segue because generally speaking in our conversations with leaders we've spotlighted, it all starts with talking about the foundational experience and you listed off a lot of the things that drive you. I think it's a good spot for us to start the conversation. When you talk about being one of seven kids in a very spiritual household, tell us a little bit about what that was like growing up and how that informed your path going forward. What did you learn from that experience and how did that shape you? So my father was a disciplinarian. My mother, she too could discipline us, but not like dad could. But we lost him when I was 11 years old. I think my faith really was cemented after his passing, more so than before. We would go to church from a very small town, Spyro, Oklahoma, really Fort Coffee, Oklahoma. It's a interesting little site. It's an old military fort, but Spyro Mounds is a Indian archeological dig site. It's historic in and of itself in Southeastern Oklahoma. The population of Spyro is around 2,400 people. You wouldn't know it because you never saw that many people that were out. High school had about 400 from ninth grade through 12th grade. Ironically, I was valedictorian of my senior class. 
and played sports, did all the things you're supposed to do in a small town, farming type of community, type of a culture. And so the African-American people lived in one side of the street, white people lived in the other side of the street. Fort Coffee was really predominantly African-American and all family-based, everyone there, but didn't desegregate until late 70s, early 80s. And so it, it had that black versus white, us versus them, haves, have-nots, or my kinfolk. In African-American homes, if you get in trouble at someone else's house, they tell your parents before you even make it home. And then that's a whooping you got at the place that you are in trouble. And then you get home and you also get spanked there because disciplining your children was a priority. And we even got paddled in school. One of my favorite teachers had a paddle called Big John. And if you step out of line, didn't matter if she was your first cousin that you knew happened to be a teacher, she would haul Big John out and you would get spankings while she was dishing out that corporal punishment at school. And then when you got home again, it's very different than today. You receive like, disciplinary actions from your parents. And so I'll say all that to inform you can't spank kids in school. You can't touch children in school. The children today want so much more than what we could ever have even imagined when I was growing up, my developmental years. I played football. I graduated high school in 1993. So that means the 80s and early 90s was just two by fours in a shape to just put a rim up. Did baseball during the summertime. And it was just a group of friends going out playing sports. We didn't have any other way. We would have pickup ball in the front yard. I remember my mom would do big cookouts during the summers and we had an old basketball. It wasn't even a real basketball goal, but we went out there and we played ball. And we would do it from sun up to sundown, wiping dirt, grime off of us, having to get water hose down before we can go into the house. But that was the neighborhood when cared genuinely about each other. Everyone knew each other and everyone liked each other. That's very different than what we have today. That informed my opinions and my beliefs. In high school, I was a standout athlete there, Spyro, multiple awards and recognition, all county, all district, those types of things. And when I made a career choice or a decision to go to college, my heart was with Oklahoma Stoners when I grew up. Jamel Holloway was running the wishbone, that type of glory day. However, I had a Spanish teacher that took interest in me who had just graduated from Oklahoma State University. In my 12th grade year, my dad had long passed several years before. She took an interest in me. She took my mom, my sister, and myself on a, her personal expense to Oklahoma State University. She coordinated the meetings. She arranged for the Dean College business to be there to meet me. And then my advisor, Janet Kimball, who was a professor at the university, Tracy made sure that she was there as well. I walked in this naive, had no idea what a teenager, a future, and walked out with unlimited scholarship funding based off of my teacher, Tracy Hayden was her name, to be able to provide for me my mom never had to spend a dime to get me through college. Everything occurred based off her scholarships and being a valedictorian. And so I use that as someone took an interest in me and I formulate my career off of that. If you take an interest in someone else and you're able to plant a seed, that seed can expand and grow so that you're always truly paying it forward. I've never forgotten where I come from. Small town, middle-class family, not even upper middle class. It really was a three-bedroom house that nine people resided in and everybody was stacked on top of each other. I really didn't have my own room until I left 
for college. And once I hit Oklahoma State in Stillwater, Oklahoma, I never really looked back. I have been running ever since, running scared, running to make sure my family, I have a daughter, she's 13, is a unique story in and of itself. I've never forgotten what it feels like to feel like I don't have enough of and running scared to ensure I don't have that same feeling hits my family, my daughter, now that I'm able to provide as an adult. And so that's some of my background, my upbringing, the religious aspect of it. It just grounds you in your faith to know there's nothing that you can't make it through if you know where your true north is. My compass is my spirituality. I may not always make it to church, but God is not only residing inside of a four walls. My mom, I'm still blessed to have her. She's 75 years old. We just had a big celebration in September of last year, and I'm quite fortunate I have not lost brothers and sisters throughout this whole process. Congratulations and happy birthday to your mom. That is definitely a blessing. When you talked a little bit about your family, a couple of things jumped out. One, you said the 1970s and 1980s, the town that you grew up in was still segregated. And when I went to school, I guess I'm going to be dating myself as well, in the 1980s, it was at Grambling State University. And I remember coming from the North, going down there and was absolutely shocked there was still segregation. I want you to talk a little bit about how that has shaped your perspective. I think the other part of it, too, that stands out for me is that when you're talking about the impact of your father. At the time, I think there's since been another. But when I graduated in 1993 as valedictorian, I was the first African-American valedictorian in the school's history. That speaks volumes. I did not, it wasn't close, not to sound egotistical or nothing. It was a full half letter grade that the salutatorian was behind me. And our graduating class had, I think, seven African-American athletes and people that were very popular. And we had a class of 80. And so that that spoke volumes. When I received over $100,000 worth of scholarship monies based on being a scholar athlete and all that, I think that was the largest amount ever given at the time in the school's history. And education, that grounding started with mom and dad. I can't recall ever having a B on a report card. I was disappointed if there was an A minus on any of my report cards. And I'm talking kindergarten through 12th grade. That sense of if you want to be someone, mom and dad both. And while my dad was a man of few words, he had his own way of instilling that in you. But you knew if you want to be someone, your education is something that no one can ever take away from you. The multiple degrees that I have or certifications, that's rock solid. That will be with me till the day I die. And that started with mom and dad. But when my father passed, I remember so vividly, it was October 13, 1986. And I got up, he passed away at home. So the Philadelphia Eagles and Dallas Cowboys played that Sunday night. It was frozen tundra out there. And they had the saying, let's call the ambulance and all those things. But I went back to, okay, I'm going to school. It was just that shock of storm, a little bit rain. So the ground had frost on it and just felt hard as bricks. My first instinct, checked on him. Okay, he was dead. We called, run into everybody. I need to do something I know that he wants me to do. I wasn't able to go to the funeral for different circumstances. And it wasn't until I was a senior in high school that I was able to even go to his grave. So I didn't go to the wake. I stayed at Fran's house, wasn't able to make it to the funeral service. So I stayed at my grandparents, his mom. She was still living at the time and grandpa was living at the time. And I stayed there and just don't even remember that whole day, which is a blur. But as I was 
being recognized as being a valedictorian, my friends were like, oh man, I would do anything to be you. You're the smartest person. You look good. You have, you're going anywhere you want. You have all these things. Your mom does all this other stuff for you. And I remember having a meltdown in the car as they were talking. It was like, what are you talking about? I would give all this away just to have, what are you talking about? Have some perspective. And I think that was the turning point for me to say, look, I know the one thing that he knew that I was great at besides baseball, because he would sneak out and watch me play, which I never knew that he was doing it because he wasn't the type of lovey huggy. I never really ran up to my dad, gave him a hug or any of that because that wasn't who he was. He was not a very emotional person. I make sure my daughter never goes to bed without me giving her a hug and a kiss every night. She's gonna have to wonder how I feel about her. She's going to know how I feel about her. And the only times in which she ever was with us is when he would drink, he was a weekend drunk. He'd come home Friday nights and that truck is driving five miles an hour because he's wasted trying to get home. But it informed so much of how he processed things. He had chronic migraines, he passed away from heart disease and we never knew that he was sick. But before he passed away, he talked to me and my sister while we were sleeping, just trying to instill some of his wisdom. And we look back now, all the signs and all the things, you second guess everything. What he was really telling us is that I love you. I've always loved you. I never want you to question that I love you and you're going to be okay. And as I process that later on, the things that I don't want people to ever wonder how I feel about them. And I think that informs so much of being authentic and being who you are is you don't have to wonder if I'm in your corner because you feel me in your corner and I do things to let you know that I support you. And I think that had a lot to do with what happened with my experiences growing up. And yes, mom, there is a separate because she was always the one out front who was going to the events, who was attending the basketball games that was the cheerleader out in front. And that was the overly compassionate spiritual voice. When dad passed away, she went to a, a whole nother world. And that was a, a rough journey for all of us at the time. She's better now, but she had her health issues as well. I think as a child, those things inform how you view the world. And from a small town, and I'll bring this back to the segregation. I grew up, but insulated from, I would say the racism piece because everyone liked me. They liked my family. They liked us. We were outgoing. We were pillars of the community and black and white both nice the hard work that i was putting not only as a scholar athlete but on the scholastic side and when it was announced that i was valedictorian i had more cafeteria people because i was always polite i worked in the principal's office the principal was amazing my first job was at an arby's my manager came to my graduation and i gave her a copy of my speech because she wanted to keep that that i the address that i gave Sparrow. i didn't feel the racism piece the year after i left it was virtually a race war at spyro because interracial dating was starting to get bigger there the athletes that were with me were dating outside the race i even had a white girlfriend at the time and once we left there was no buffer between excellence and just being rough, to say the least. And when I was in college, I received a phone call. It's, they are about to kill themselves. The girls are fighting the girls. The boys are fighting the boys. It's black versus white. Is there anything that you guys can do to try to quiet that down? I went back home that summer just to see if I could help, but I never went back after that. It had gotten so far out of control and people were just literally at each other's throats. And you wonder what kind of precipitates 
the that type of experience because the girls they love the black guys love the girls they were going to be together regardless and the parents were the one with the issue they continued to move on with those relationships even at the risk of being kicked out of their parents homes and i think that was truly the turning point is when people start to see you as them and you start to in, infringe on their households that's when you become a true threat i was gone out of the situation so i didn't have to worry about it in my ivory tower of steel water which being one of OSU didn't have a whole lot of african americans there unless you were on the football team basketball team and so when i went to college i was still the only black guy on the floor i was still the only black guy that was in the residence hall on my floor because there weren't a lot of african americans on that and so i got a lot of practice with being the first of or the only one in a lot of different ways. I think that what's interesting is that I think it's hard sometimes for people to process how recent these issues are, meaning folks will think sometimes, oh, this is way back when. But right. it caught my attention almost immediately when you said the 1970s to 1980s and that the whole notion of race in America, people thinking that it's, it's passe, all of that. And in fact, it's still not, unfortunately. The other thing that, that stands out to me is that when you were talking about your father and your mother, it sounded to me as though this idea of our childhoods, which I think Jim had talked about at the top of the show, the whole idea and notion of how those relationships shape us. And right. you've called out a couple times, and I think this is something that has to be very authentic to you, is the whole idea of being transparent and authentic as a leader. You've said that probably 10 different ways to Sunday. And it's a very important, I think, framework for people to live into as leaders. As we think about, you talked about making sure that people feel welcome and knowing that they're heard and knowing that they're thought of. In our, one of our previous episodes, I think in all of our previous episodes so far, that has come up as a recurring theme of how important it is to make sure that people feel valued and know. In, in today's society, community is so important. The connection that people need to feel tethered to this world by something or someone is so real. It is so true that people leave managers, but they also leave corporations and companies that forget that they exist that there's no value that they provide and, and they go elsewhere. COVID has put into perspective the fragility of life. And if you're not going to be valued with the place or the people that you go clock in eight to five, whatever it is, then someone else will value. And you should never discount your, you should never dim your light so someone else shines. And I had a wonderful mentor that kind of got me and she told me that. She said, you don't have to dim your life to someone else. But understanding the humility that comes with the responsibility of someone that has been provided so much, you have an obligation to give back. I have an obligation through my ancestors to be able to lift others as I climb. It's not enough for me to just benefit from the hard work and contributions of leaders. I can't help you or whatever it is, or I can connect you with someone. I try to respond to that. And make sure that people know that I see them. I hear you. Yes, there is a need. And if I'm in position to be able to help with that need, then I'm going to do that for you. And so that's the piece that's missing. The humanity in the world has gotten cold over the last 20 plus years. Politicalization of so many things. It comes back to the basics. Are you a decent person? And if you are, then you should want to help your fellow man. Without question. One of the things that I think Jim and I have talked about, and it's interesting, it was these conversations that he and I were having continuously around different topics. And I think 
the common thread that we had aside from just from a pure career development standpoint further faster that's just how we're wired but the other part of it was is this whole idea notion of starting with humanity i think that's a critical element because starting with humanity allows us to have a platform that is one of equity, one of equality, that we understand, we see one another, and we have more things that are similar than dissimilar. And we live in a time where folks are trying to isolate and say, this is why I'm different and this is why I'm different. And certainly not to take away from one's individual assessment of who they are, we still have to start with humanity to, to even recognize the differences. Recognize the differences are part of the are part of the tapestry for us to be able to be successful in what it is that we do. So I appreciate you sharing the story and how you have developed to this point. When you look at the part about LinkedIn, right? And we talk about using LinkedIn as that as a tool or social as a tool. And so we'll get to that a little later on in the career side of things, but it's definitely a tool that we think you should be using, which is a plug for our show. You definitely want to be listening to Cascading Leadership, <laughs> but I right. think you also want to be connecting with folks like yourself. And especially when you say that you're open to receiving that kind of the invitations to help people if you can, and if you, you, you can be candid with them and say that we can. Right. Imagine the audacity of someone asking for help and you tell them I can't. You're so important that everything that you're doing is less important or more important than someone else. And I look at it from that standpoint. I may not be able to provide you with the answer, but I can at least point you in a direction. It takes two, three minutes to read a post that someone has taken the time out of their busy day, their life to say, it's so important that I'm gonna outreach to you. And can you help me in this regard? And so I think as servant leaders, I think we're called to be empathetic, to understand how others feel. What if the shoe were on your foot that you're trying to explore? And what if you needed help? And if you put yourself in someone else's position, then the need to help and the want to help is just right there. It's a basic human need of wanting to be able to be a support to people as we move forward. That's just how I structure my life. It may not be right for everybody, but it's how I lead, it's how I manage, and it's what I want our organizations to, to espouse and believe in as well. Tune in next time for the conclusion of this conversation on Cascading Leadership. Thank you for listening to this episode of Cascading Leadership. We hope you enjoyed the story as much as we did. Make sure you subscribe to our show on your favorite podcast player. Follow us on YouTube, TikTok, LinkedIn, Twitter, and Facebook. Leave us a review. Tell a friend. If you're interested in sponsoring the show, reach out to me at jim at cascadingleadership.com. Tune in next time for another great episode that will help you move your career further faster.